Hey, let's start the show. For Thursday, May 12th, 2016, welcome to This Is Only a Test, the official podcast of Tested.com. Good morning or evening or very, very early morning to everyone out there. And good morning to everyone in here. Hello, I'm Norm. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us this week for this episode of This Is Only a Test. And uh, thank you guys for joining us, the two co-hosts, guests to my left. It's Jeremy Williams. Hello. And Kishore Hari. Hi. No titles. Down with the titles. It's all good. This is an equal opportunity workplace. That's right. That's what that means. Right? We're all hosts. We're, we're all hosts. We're, we're yeah. all hosts. Here to talk about technology news, virtual reality, some science, and as we do now, kick things off with a little bit of pop culture. Now, I'm going to not apologize to Jeremy for our conversation last week <coughs> about Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet and the Infinity Gems. I was impressed. I don't know why you would apologize. You guys oh. are clearly just, you carry nerd cards and you... You wear them well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Offers the discounts at, at uh, Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh, but we do want to start talking about this, the Marvel Universe again this week because Civil War is out. Now, still on Stone Titled, Will, Adam, and I did talk at length about Civil War. Did you guys listen to the podcast? Yes, I watched it. I did. Okay. Yeah, so I, was, you guys- I was well impressed. You guys are some smart cats. I got to put that out there. You guys all throughout the whole podcast, you went from like the presidency to Broadway to actors, the difference between Will and John Hurt, and all the way through Civil War. I was impressed. Mm. You guys, are, It was a good podcast. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to double dip, and we're going to talk about Civil War yet again because I want to get you guys in on the conversation. Now, both of I you widely disagreed with with your take on on the still untitled this week. Oh you, yeah, what? I disagreed with their their whole perspective. Oh, you disagreed with their perspective on civil war. Yeah. Well, that's important. That's great because they kind of all agreed. We all agreed. I think Adam, Will, and I all we all agreed that while the movie was great, uh, it maybe uh, we don't know how it will stand the test of time, and we thought that better than Ultron, maybe not as good as Winter Soldier. <clears throat> At least that was my perspective. I got to rewatch Winter Soldier first of all because I've only seen that once, and I didn't think it was as good as Avengers. I really liked Avengers. That's mm. that's the top for me. I'm amazed by how well choreographed all the conversations are, as well as the fight scenes. Um, and that's one thing I really liked about Civil War was how well um, orchestrated the arguments were, where both sides of the arguments, whether they were in the boardroom or elsewhere, they always had good points. It was like neither side was wrong. You could understand that point of view, and I, I really appreciated that it wasn't just, you know, obviously this guy's right and that guy's being stupid. And without moving into spoiler cast territory, we will not spoil all the big secrets and reveals and, and surprises from the film in case there are listeners of this podcast who now one week into the movie's release still haven't seen it yet. For shame. Uh, we will, I guess, I guess it's fair to talk about the thing that I was most surprised about after our podcast came out was... How many people sided with Tony Stark and felt that there was the ambiguity? Because for me, it was very clear, you know, I like Captain America more and I sided with his argument more. I thought he was the hero. I actually was really close to being on Team Iron Man because when I reflected on it 
after the experience, I, that's what I felt like. I should have been on Team Iron Man that whole way. During the movie, I came in Team Cap because that's how I experienced reading the comic book mm-hmm. as well. So I think I had a bias towards that. But I, I left with, like, shifted. Uh, and I think if I, when I go see it again, when I go see it again, because I do think it's better than Winter Soldier now that I wow. thought about it. Um I think I will be on more on Iron Man's side. I think there's an argument he made that people have sort of dismissed, uh, but has been a thread throughout multiple movies. So that now, we, I will completely agree with you there, where that the characterization of Iron Man and the believability for you as a viewer that why he would choose that side is much better explained. His motivations and his actions in this film are much more believable than in the comic book series Civil War. In the comic book series Civil War, they really just made Captain America the good guy and made Iron Man the bad guy. And the actions that Iron Man took in, in the comic book series Civil War uh, were just like, vil- like the villainous. Uh, here, it's way more ambiguous, and I think over the course of the Phase 1 and Phase 2 movies, even back to his first characterization in the first Iron Man movie, uh, being the weapons dealer turned hero, uh, you get that sense that this is where it was all building up to. The other thing I'll say that I think hasn't been mentioned about, I think this movie has the best villain of any of the Marvel movies so far. That's surprising to hear. Now, again, we don't want to spoil exactly what the, the villain and the motivations are at the plot-wise. Uh, I heard a lot of people say that they thought the villain was forgettable, like because so much of the movie was mired in that conflict between Captain America and Iron Man, bros becoming foes, uh, that the the villain really was was an afterthought. I, I think if you, uh, upon reflection, I think the villain here is going to linger. I hope and, so, too. And I think as more films are added on to the end of this story, I think that villain's going to rise hmm. farther in terms hmm. of total impact to the in- entire world. It's hard to compare movie. To, I think it's easy to compare movie to movie, and that's unfair to a certain extent. Uh, because Civil War, or, uh, Civil War, like Winter Soldier, was really a spy movie, and this is not a spy movie, right? But you have to think about them in aggregate. the The arcs of these characters have to be considered over multiple movies in, in terms of their motivations. And I think the lingering impact of this villain, I think Ultron's going to have no impact to the MCU. I think the villain in this story will. And that's a very good point. Where are the teams end up, and where the characters end up at the end of this film? absolutely have lingering And I think that's going to reflect incredibly positively. Now, Jeremy, did you watch it with your son? Yeah. Did he enjoy it? And what was his perspective? Because I'm always interested of uh, what what the younger audience... Well, what's interesting about him, he's he's a sensitive guy, and so he's nine years old, so going into PG-13, you know, we could have been dangerous territory, but he did great with it. He loved it. Um, He was nervous going into it about seeing friends fight with each other, because that made him a little stressed out. Um, But, uh, you know, to... It, the way that they handled that I thought was really, really great because they made sure that uh, to communicate that they were fighting, but that they were still friends on some level, it, you know, with the exception of maybe towards deeper in the movie. But especially the airport scene, there was it was there was a lot of comedy involved. There mm-hmm. was, you know, there was Hawkeye and um, uh, what Scarlett Johansson, what's her name? Black Widow. Black Widow, you know, having a little repartee in the middle of a fist fight. It was good. I thought that they handled that very well. Um, I wanted to make uh, my. I want to express my point, which was that the uh, the whole dichotomy between Captain America and Iron Man, um, and what they're arguing for early in the movie w- when it comes to the government oversight. Um, 
I was I was surprised. Maybe you can explain to me in terms of the comic books why this makes more sense. But don't they seem to be on opposite sides of what you would expect? Because, yes. Because yeah. And that was Tony Stark seems like he would be the renegade, and Captain America is a soldier mm-hmm. who you would expect just to be feel perfectly at home with oversight. And that is absolutely the conceit of it. Because on the surface, you know, Tony Stark in Iron Man Two went up to Congress and gave him the middle finger and said, you know. I, you can't control me. Right. I'm I'm a, I'm a weapon of mass destruction. I'll do whatever I want. And so, as a as a story arc, as a character, in terms of character development, it makes total sense to have catalysts that give him more of a conscience or change his think, way of thinking. And they explain it, I think, in a really clever way. Uh, you know, where he is in his personal life and what happened at the end of Iron Man three and why he came Iron Man again in Ultron. Yeah. I kind of got his side of it. I didn't mm-hmm. understand why Captain America... If you watch Winter Soldier, I think it really emphasizes why Cap would be on that side. Okay. There's a level of disillusionment that I think yeah. he goes through yes. in that movie that really carries through here. Hmm. I will want. I do want to watch that again. I mean, the fact that they are on the opposite sides of where on the surface their characters should be means that they're not just surface-level characters. Wow, which I, I do appreciate that. Yep. I, just, I also need it. I need to believe it. Okay, yeah. Well, it was it was definitely a worthy entry into the Marvel universe. Though. Totally, the, uh, it's it's a great movie. I encourage everyone to see it that hasn't so far. Your comment about you know how this will hold up—that's an open question. It's too mm-hmm. early to tell. It's going to take multiple viewings. It's going to go through that rewatchability test that Avengers has really succeeded in. Like I can't not watch the Avengers if I flip by it on TV at this point. So yeah, I think Avengers is probably still the high bar in terms of the writing. Joss Whedon really poured all of his clever Joss Whedon-ness into it. And uh, the writers of Captain America Civil War, the writing duo who have now written more Marvel movies than anyone, while they get the characters, I don't think they're as proficient writers. And it, they lack like a Whedon or Sorkin-esque to it. The, the, the elegance of of, of the dialogue. It's true. But Whedon had that pretty big drop off when it went to Ultron. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I mean, I think of Avengers as being a, a real high bar in terms of just nailing it. But I was not as impressed with Ultron. I think Ultron, I mean, Ultron maybe it was a little more, he tried to be a little more clever sometimes. It definitely had the very Whedon-esque lines. Um, but wasn't there too much action in that movie? There was that, just too much. That's what I really liked about Civil War is that it was the same ratio as Avengers where there are really great action scenes, but they, they really take their time with the exposition and giving time for dialogue to occur. You know, really good dialogue. Um, so. it, it demands rewatching. At this point, all three of us have only seen it the one time. And so these are hot takes. Yes. I saw it in 2D. What about you? I saw an IMAX 3D. Now, the IMAX 3D in San Francisco just got upgraded seats. So <laughs> what do you mean? Like comfier seats? Comfier seats. No they, they didn't. They all in the month of February, they were down for several weeks. They didn't even show Batman v Superman in IMAX in San Francisco. Huh. The one true IMAX screen in the Bay Area. That's right. Uh, they got. They finally updated their seats. Nice, like cushiony, leathery seats. Is that the new laser projector too? No, it must be because it, it, it's one they use for Force Awakens. Okay. And so that looks pretty good. It's supposed to be yeah. where, like, it's so bright that even with the 3D glasses on, it still appears. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a great Louis C.K. bit about him going to the IMAX theater. And all he's there for is that opening IMAX sequence where they bring the numbers at you in 3D. It was yeah. five, four, and that's when they show really bright. And in the, the Metreon, that opening sequence is it's like, oh, it's amazing. Okay. So I usually avoid 3D just because 
it's I feel like it, things get blurred and it's just not uh, done well or integrated in the story. Is it worth watching in 3D? I think if the screen is big enough, then absolutely. I mean, a lot of people, I haven't seen The Jungle Book, and people say Jungle Book is really worth it in 3D. Oh, I hadn't heard that. That's good yeah. to know. Yeah, so I want to watch that. And then there's so many movies. I just feel like out. the 3D movies are trying to do VR, and that was before VR was even here, and now it just seems even more of a gimmick. I mean, we're we're gonna get to the VR in a minute, but there are there was there was an interview with the Russo brothers who directed Civil War, and they said one of the technologies they're interested in for Infinity War is VR. Now I don't know what that means. It could mean as like a marketing tie-in. Definitely, the movie's not gonna be VR. There's there's no cinematic infrastructure to do 180 degree movies i mean i would be more interested when you say vr it just means the, the way they're filming the movie can be different but like bring back that whole ultra widescreen cinerama style experience where you have to gaze left and right and they can tell they have a bigger canvas to tell a story a uh, bigger rectangle and then i mean i wouldn't mind watching it like a 2d or whatever like a 3d movie in a virtual movie theater in 3D, where the 3D could actually come out into the movie theater. Like right now, you have to deal with the constraints of, this, of the edges of the screen, mm -hmm. and so you can't move things out such that, you know, y y there's, a, it, there's a narrow cone. The further things get towards you, the narrower the spaces that things can exist in 3D. Right, and the more your eyes have to strain. Sure. But so that. if you could do a 3D movie in a virtual theater where you weren't constrained by that, where things could actually go off to the side, or exit, you know, hit the walls, things like that, that might be kind of interesting. And at that point, you're just limited by the uh, pixel density and field of view exactly. of whatever headset you're wearing. Right. But you can theoretically get better audio, more spatial audio. And I think what you're talking about, because there's no reason, I mean, at that point, you're just watching like a, you're in a in-engine experience. Yeah. But having the switch between a 2D and then bring a 2D experience, and then bringing out things in 3D and having that mid experience is the exciting part for you. And it retains the director's capability to control where the focus is. Because for the know, majority of the film. In yeah. a 360 degree environment, you can't control where the player's looking. Have you watched any, I know we're gonna come to the VR minute, have you actually sat and watched a, a feature length thing in VR yet? Mm -hmm. I have not. I did it with Gear VR, so I've done. I, I watch animated films, which I think look great. Spirited Away, Monsters University, like CG stuff and traditional hand-drawn stuff look really nice on those 1440p screens uh, in the Oculus Cinema. Um, with the CV1, I tried watching like Creed in uh, in virtual desktop and making my settings and. It was not as enjoyable as just watching it on the computer monitor. Yeah. I want at least one more generation of resolution bump. I can't imagine watching it in the Vive just from a pure comfort standpoint of mm -hmm. wearing that for, um, you know, an hour and a half or something like that. But I am going to, that's one of those things I'm going to try early on with my Rift. But we'll come to that. Yep. Uh, there was also free comic book day this past weekend. Didn't have you partake in those festivities? I go every year. I take my kid to my local comic book shop. What's nice. the deal? It's they give away, you know, somewhere between like six and eight different titles uh, that are designed specifically for this day. My kid picked up a Captain America title wow. and uh, my local shop, Amazing Fantasy in the inner sunset of San Francisco, had J.C. Lee come by Stan Lee's daughter. She oh. was signing her book. Wow. And That's great. It, it was great. It, it It's one of those things where it's kind of a silly reason to go to the comic book store. But there were more people in the comic book store on this day than any other day of the year that I've noticed, which is just refreshing, um, especially for well. the local shops. Yeah, uh, I know. Like, I don't know when the last time 
most people min- go to a comic book store is like, I don't know when the last time I, I, I walk by, I walk in when I'm walking by, but it's not like a weekly visit anymore. Um, I think digital. Like comics. when you were a kid. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, you know, a lot of the stores now these days, like, also, when you're a kid and going into one of those stores, like, there's so much to see, you know, the displays and stuff. And there's some stores that are very Spartan that, you know, there's not a lot of. Their, their purpose is to make you buy stuff. And as an adult, I walk in and I feel guilty if I don't buy anything, also. Um, I think they're timed these free comic book days really well. Because always at the beginning of the movie season, and if you're going to have three or four superhero movies out in a summer, especially opening weekend for Civil War, then the comic book companies will make sure they sell the comics that are somewhat tangentially related to the characters uh, in the film. So I know Marvel is amping up its Civil War II storyline, and so they'll give, like, here's your digest of, like, how get introduced to the characters if you want to watch the movie and buy the book. Do you think that's been successful? Getting a mainstream audience to buy more comics? They've been trying to do it since Spider-Man 1 in 2002. I don't think so. Uh, it, the free comic day as a promotional value has, has worked, but I haven't seen any data indicate that has led to increased sales across these lines. I mean... The Tanishi Coates taking over Black Panther has been really successful. That mm-hmm. bringing in writers from other domains to take over lines, I think it's probably a more interesting way to go. Yeah, and I think what actually what you notice more and maybe definitely more measurable is movies uh, inform the creative direction and editorial decisions of comic books. So Guardians of the Galaxy coming out and being a big Marvel temple movie and a big franchise film and having a lot of success then you see a lot more Guardians comics out there in all their variations, manga, kids, versions, the, their series, because and, and, those characters are now just better known. Are there, the canon, are there canon Star Wars comics? Since, oh, yeah. Since, yeah. since The Force Awakens? Uh, even before. So Marvel took over uh, Star Wars, the, the comic series, which they had a long time ago. They did like that, the film adaptations when uh, Episode 4, 5, and 6 came out. But between... Then in the dark times, it was Dark Horse Comics that did all the Marvel, all the Star Wars, and they did all the EU stuff, um, which is now not canon. Right. So leading up to Force Awakens, Marvel took back Marvel Comics took back publication, and they got tons of talented writers and artists, like big heavyweights in the comic book industry, to do these series that were just about Darth Vader, just about Leia, just about Han Solo, just about Luke, and those have been very, very successful, hmm. and they're canon now. Right. That's interesting. My favorite part of, of Free Comic Book Day, just last tangent, I went in there and I've known the owner for a while. He has an identical twin, and now I have no idea who I've been talking to for all these years, which one of them. It was the most comic book thing I've ever experienced in real life. Multiple band. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You know, a couple more Star Wars and Disney-related things. Uh, it was just announced this week that Disney is shutting down Disney Infinity. Oh, yeah. That was, we, we just bought it. Hugely. Like I mean, it's, what a shock and disappointment. Um, it's a big money write-down, too. $140 million write-down. Well, that wasn't just for Disney Infinity. Yeah. I think Disney is now getting out of the game publishing business. No more big Disney booth at E3. They're going to license things. They're just going to license things, which they have done. And they, they're continuing to do with their Star Wars brand, of course, with EA. Which makes sense. Um, I mean, it does. The Infinity stuff, um, it's, it's all there. And I don't think kids care so much about graphical fidelity or frame rate. But it's, they weren't great. They weren't extremely technically well-produced games. 
but there were sandboxes. Yeah. And I think these were uh, as an experiment because the Infinity thing, just like the Amiibos, and uh, it, they were a response to Activision's huge success with Skylanders. Yeah, which is still a success. And but less so, I think. I mean, maybe that it's, it's like the Tamagotchi or the Pokemon phase, uh, uh, which kind of waned a little bit and couldn't be a pillar of a company's you know financial future. Well, like, like Activision had Skylanders, Tony Hawk, Call of Duty. Right. Um, maybe that was due to some of the competition too. Yes. With that pulling out, might be better for Skylanders. And also just fatigue. I think that at some point where you're just releasing these toys and getting parents stop wanting to buy. $10, $15 toys every few months just so their kids have new toys to play both in real, you know, cheap toys to put on their video games. Yeah. Oh, kids grow out of it too. Did but. you buy it for a console or did you buy it for the Apple TV? <clears throat> no, we bought it for the PlayStation 4. Because I know they're, they, I mean, they made an announcement just a month ago about this coming to Apple TV, like the 3.0 yeah. will be compatible. So this yeah. is, Shocker! It how is. quickly it turned around. They're and still going to release a couple things. There's two mm-hmm. more packs coming out uh, later this year. One for Finding Dory. Mm-hmm. So I guess they're just cutting it off later this year. I think it speaks less about the uh, about Disney Infinity and its creative success than it does Disney and their approach to publishing. Like they just want to get out of that business. It wasn't going to be. It, w- it wasn't worth you know having the all the infrastructure to yeah. to be a publisher. Uh, it's sad. Um, but you, at least you can pick up a bunch of Infinity <laughs> toys cheaper now. You already can. Like GameStop was running uh, five for the price of two special when, <laughs> oh, when, wow. when we bought in a couple weeks ago. Do people buy? I know, I know that a lot of people buy Amiibos just because they like the design and look of the Amiibos. Like Gary really likes the Amiibos and then collects them, even though he might not actually play play them. Um, do people buy Infinity the, the Infinity toys as a collectible? I would imagine. They're all, they're all look really good. I mean, they're great little figurines, even though who care you know might not care about the little RFID chip in the bottom. Mm, all right. Uh, did you guys see that? Uh, well, we, the other sad thing about Disney Infinity is it's because it's Disney. It's not very likely that they're going to release assets and let a third party take over and continue development. It's the mashup right. aspect that they wouldn't trust someone else with. I, exactly, and also they want to control their brand. But something they can't control are fan edits of trailers. Now, there have been a couple good ones, especially Star Wars ones recently. Uh, there was an edit called um, The Heroes Are for, like Something The Light. or It was a, basically a, a, a episode four, five, and six mashup in modern day editing. Um, I'll put a link to it in the in the show notes below. But there's the one that got the most attention recently was the Bond James Bond style inspired Empire Strikes Back trailer opening sequence actually not even a trailer. Yeah, Jeremy and I watched this before the podcast started. I think uh, Jeremy's look was unimpressed. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I didn't know I didn't know what it was supposed to be, but I just hated the music. Well, the music was the Radiohead Spectre song that MGM decided not to use for Spectre. Because they went with the uh, the other song, the Academy Award-winning song, um, which I didn't like that much. Uh, but like, did you have do you have an affinity for the James Bond-style opening sequences? Oh, I used to. Uh, yeah, sure. I guess I have the affinity for the opening sequence. And so um, this is supposed yeah. to be like that opening sequence. Okay. Yeah, I get it now. Although it's very very well done. It's it's well done. It's it, it's a matchup that's okay. I actually enjoyed the Rogue One trailer in Lego more. That was a, a little bit more fun for me. Uh, because they managed to get some of the the emotion of that trailer into the into Lego into Lego, which is oh, hilarious to me. Interesting. Is somebody playing music, audio? I cut it. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, some last video game news uh, before we jump into tech news. Uh, two big video games announced recently, and some interesting 
fan reactions. So uh, Call of Duty, the newest Call of Duty, is going to be called Infinite Warfare. And have you guys seen the trailer for this? Uh, yes. The revealed trailer, which used um, uh, Space Oddity, a version of, a cover of. Uh, oh, I haven't watched it yet, but I've, I've been on the internet, so I've seen the reactions to so this. So what has, how much of an Infinite Warfare is supposed to take place off-planet? I think it's, I, I don't know. I mean, the, I think the big conceit is that this now is set in the future where there are colonies and it's a fight between people on Earth versus these people in the colonies and there's going to be space battles and it's maybe going to be a little less boots on the ground and more boots on a you know spaceship. Um, and uh, may, some people have complained that it's moving into too much in the Halo territory and mm. the things they like about Call of Duty is more about the feel and the, the, you know, the, the, the kind of tro- trooper feel, that team-based warfare. Um, but uh, on the flip side, EA released their trailer for Battlefield 1. Going the other direction. World War One, yeah, complete opposite direction. Which, like, you see these two franchises kind of move step in step. When, and Call of Duty, I think, has had, has had more success uh, overall with their Modern Warfare and Black Ops series, while Battlefield had had some missteps with their the Criminal mm-hmm. series. Uh, even though Battlefield 3 was hugely successful. Uh, 4, less so much because of the launch problems. Battlefield 1, World War One, it looks incredible. That's a... If you, just, if you play those trailers side by side, one looks like a next-gen game, and one looks like a current-gen game. Yeah. I don't know. I don't judge games based on trailers. And you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Even though they say in-engine footage. In-engine footage just means they use the engine to render something out, but it's right. not actual gameplay footage. Exactly. Uh, but I think the reaction was on the internet for some reason, and there's been some conspiracy theories about this. The Battlefield 1 trailer has a million likes, which has made it the, one of the top five most liked trailers, videos, or trailers ever. Wow. On YouTube. In a week? In a week. Wow. And the Call of Duty Infinite Warfare trailer has a million dislikes. Oh, okay. So it's some campaign, and there definitely is like the snowball There's a little effect. brigading going on. But yeah. the what I, do you buy into any of the conspiracy that this is at least about the, uh, about the Call of Duty, about the sort of changeover in Infinite Ward, the, the Infinity Ward, in, yeah, Infinity Ward. Sorry, I mean, I, I Infinity Ward's not hasn't been Infinity Ward for a long time. The Infinity Ward guys who started it are now making the Star Wars game. They're respawn entertainment, right? They made Titanfall, um, so I'm sure when they came up with this idea, because this is a game that's it's done basically. It's coming out November, and they've been working on it for two years. When it came about, think about two years ago. What was hot? All right, what was what was the thing that got everyone excited two years ago in pop culture? It was space. It was interstellar and gravity, and that kind of you know and, and teases of that in the modern warfare games. You know that, that the astronaut level and stuff like that. I think gave people like the, at least the perception, the creative side, that they wanted to make a space game. You know that this is the way to logically take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like that EA went the other direction. What? And it's just such a better trailer. It's such a good yeah, trailer. It, it is it's, a better it's trailer. It's a great trailer, but like in terms of, you know, the trailers are supposed to, the one, music is good. they tell you a story, but they also, a good trailer uh, for a video game, which is different than a good trailer for a movie, it's supposed to sell you on, uh, give you teases as to what the, some of the gameplay experiences are going to be. Yeah. Right? So, you know, you see in the Call of Duty trailer, oh, they're going to be flying ships. That's new. Flying ships at the speed and doing that kind of warfare. They had glimpses of that. In Battlefield 1, horses. Yeah. Horses versus tanks. Uh-huh. And Tr- real trench warfare, zeppelins. Biplanes. And, oh, my God. Bi- biplanes and the scale 
that you see in a battlefield game, yeah. like it makes it more physics oriented. Like those the limitations of technology as informed by his history uh, make it more of a strategic and skill based game. And I think maybe that's what people are responding to really well. Mm-hmm. You know, Dice, the, the, the makers of Battlefield, their their first game, uh, Codename Eagle, I want to say, um, was a World War One game. So this is even their first game. Hmm. I think it's interesting that they're doing World War One because I, th- I think a lot of people will probably learn something about that war from this game. <laughs> it's it's the Hamilton version, yeah, exactly. the video game <laughs> version exactly. of Hamilton. This could be highly educational. <laughs> <laughs> I I. I, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, I don't know if it'll be taught in schools. <laughs> but, but okay. I, I, do, okay. I do think it'll have an educational I element to it. I completely concede the point because Battlefield 1942 made me interested in World War II in a way that no class, no documentary, I, I guess aside from the war, uh, made me interested in some of those battles. Like, I know the battle areas of El Alamein and and um, and curse because of video games now it is a specific like narrow viewpoint like there's obviously a lot 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 more to it but yeah um let's jump into tech news for which we still don't have an audio intro so we'll just go with Along with that Battlefield 1 announcement, uh, late last week we also saw the long-awaited announcement of NVIDIA's Consumer Pascal video cards. This is the GeForce 1000 series. This is is the tech news that's going to make me feel bad. I'm so sorry. Why? What happened? Well, we've been telling people not to build VR PCs until they have their VR headsets, or until they know when they're going to get their VR headsets. Ah, right. And especially... Uh, late last year, you know, when when we were still in the anticipation before even pre-orders started, some people, um, including people on this panel, uh, built their PCs for Black Friday. Now, Black Friday is a great, I think, great time to buy some components, some evergreen components. But you kind of know when, like, the video cards are supposed to get announced. And we, we expected last year that around that spring time frame, this is a little later than, than previous years, uh, around that GDC time frame, NVIDIA is going to announce their newest this year's video card. We know that Intel does an announcement in the summer with you know um, the the e versions in the fall PAX time frame. This that was a two minute way of Norm <laughs> telling me I told you so about this. But let's talk about the card itself okay. for a second. All right. So this is Pascal, and the previous cards Maxwell has been was hugely successful. The 980 series. Um, hugely, hugely successful for NVIDIA. I mean, because of the performance improvements in Maxwell um, and the 980 Ti just being incredible. Um, and previously to Pascal, you had the 980, 980 Ti, and Titan X at the high level $1,000 video card. And anticipation for Pascal, I mean, if you saw the press conference, they blew up. They, they said this was, you know, de- years and years, billion dollars R&D in the, re- in the making. It really is a refinement of Maxwell, but done on a new process, which is that's the exciting part. It's mm-hmm. on 60 nanometer process. Which did they then, announce that? They did. Oh, 60 nanometer. Wow. Uh, new uh, TSMC process with like it's not even just 60 nanometer. There's a special layering they deal with it. Um, that gives them the efficiency for them to amp up the clock speed a ton and also put a ton more transistors on there. So 
uh, I don't know the I don't know the exact numbers in front of me, but what they're claiming is their high end, which is a 1080 now, $600 video card will be faster than the Titan X from last year, the right. $1,000 video card. And faster than uh, SLI 980s. Right. Uh, now, they're also saying the 1070, which is a $380 video card, also faster than Titan X. That is The incredible. 1070 is where the... The sweet inter- spot is. It, That's where the really interesting buy is yeah it doesn't come out till next month this month for 1070 no 1080 oh so this month sorry this month for 1080 it may uh, end of this month and june 10th i believe yeah it's only like a two-week wait for the 1070 yeah. are they doing the whole like you know kickstart the gpu sales with limited run of these no, that no they've no. done in the past or is it just like hit the ground and go i think they want to hit the ground and go now they're also doing an interesting thing which i think is maybe less exciting uh, which is they're selling a founders edition card for a hundred dollars more yeah what is that now the, you think okay a hundred dollars more does that mean you get like base like overclock or is there going to be special things unlocked it's actually none of that it's not overclocked it uses nvidia's reference cooler it's basically their reference cards Wait, the regular card isn't the reference card? No, the regular cards are going to be sold by the third parties. Oh, okay. So third party makers will sell their cards and maybe use their cooler designs. But if you want to get NVIDIA's cool, like, tessellated-looking, like, polygonal cooler design, pay an extra $100. Don't get that. (laughs) Get them as cheap as you can. Yeah, You can still overclock them. Dude, I say get a 980 a month from now because they're going to be dirt cheap. That's that's the feeling I have too. But if you're building out for the future, if it's only you know a less than a hundred dollar difference between the ten seventy and the nine eighty, I would go with that ten seventy. Oh yeah, yeah. no, totally. I would too if it's only a hundred bucks. And and my argument also is uh, having benchmark nine eighty nine eighty Ti and Titan X. Even nine eighty Ti couldn't do reliable four K gaming at sixty FPS. Mm-hmm. Uh, Titan X I thought was the first card that could do forty FPS. If you had like a G Sync. Uh, CP, uh, monitor, uh, you could get super frame rate, like super smooth frame rates with basically everything maxed out on majority of games at 4K, uh, yeah. which had never been done before. And the fact that you're going to be able to do that with a card that's $380, that's totally reasonable for a graphics card, uh, I think is mind blowing. The next version of DisplayPort is supposed to support uh, 4K at 120 hertz. Wow. They, they said they're supposed to. They're ready for it in NVIDIA. It just hasn't been you know, finalized yet. Mm. Um, the other thing that NVIDIA announced was also new software features. And the one that's most interesting to me is something they're calling Ansel. Oh, good, because me too. Yeah, I thought this yeah. was very cool. So Ansel is a way, I think it's going to be probably built into the GeForce experience. Uh, so probably get OB in more than just the new uh, Pascal cards. I hope it gets scrolled down to Maxwell also. Uh, but a way for you to, I don't know exactly how it'll work, but they say in any game allow you to... No, it requires... Um, Participation by the developers. Ah, got it. Okay, so developers need to enable it. Yeah. And then it, while in-game, you get to pause the game, bring up the an overlay, and then maneuver your camera outside of your character or whatever your it, visual interface is and take a 360-degree image. Stereo. stereo image. It re-renders it. That's right. Yeah. For, for viewing in VR. That's awesome. Totally, yeah, it, and it does a stitching. It's like any other panorama that we've shot with regular cameras or in-game before, but this will do, do everything for you, so you can move the camera out, you can tilt it, you can uh, even do some effects if you want to, uh, but then it will. you hit one button, and with the world frozen, which is critical, mm-hmm. because if you're trying to do panoramas, you, you'll get bad overlaps if the world isn't frozen. Yep. 
Uh, it will shoot from every angle and get all your stereo images and combine them, stitch them together. It's totally the kind of thing that I don't think it's going to be used by even the, the half of the users or owners. But it's something that um, it, I mean, it, they spent money on, and I'm really glad they did because the people who like taking screenshots and love, sh I mean, for game developers, it's going to be great. Well, I think what this is, a, you're right. So for game magazines or game publications and mm -hmm. websites, just the standard rectangular new screenshot capability could be awesome. Yeah. Because you're going to be able to get some really cinematic shots. And there's a whole community out there who all they do in post in forums or have dedicated blogs just for right. posting their shots. Now, there used to be a whole skill involved in that, right? Uh, there you, still is. And, and there is. <laughs> and there is. But it used to be like this voodoo magic where you would oversample your graphics card, tell the video card you're rendering at much higher resolution than it actually does, so it's super samples. Uh, and then, which NVIDIA had brought in previously in an update, yeah. and then they would find the right shot, and they would use code hacks, to, you know, cheat codes, no clip, and then find right. interesting ways to get, take a, a photo. Try to get the HUD removed, which right. was hard. Exactly, sometimes. and now this simplifying it, does that, I mean, it's, it's a democratization of that process. Oh, it's fantastic. It's great. I mean, and it's something that you need to have done at the driver level, too. So it's not like Fraps could have come along and done this. Mm -hmm. The fact that you can move out, move the camera anywhere you want, that's going to no. break the game in a lot of ways. So you're going to have to be more careful as a photographer about where you're aiming the camera. Right. Um, I hope the audience becomes over time more discerning, as I point. What I'm excited about is I think this will be a great way to take screenshots for VR games. So that yeah. you, you'll be able to browse a VR store and hit, you know, in VR and view a screenshot and be able to look around the game space in stereo 3D. You mean like the what Oculus Promise when they first announced the store in Oculus Home? I don't remember them promising that. Oh, come on, Jeremy. I they really don't. totally no. did. No, I believe you. So but Oculus promised that in the store, one of the ways they would take advantage of VR is when you load up you know, uh, the, the menu item for a game like Kronos, instead of just showing you the slideshow of screenshots and a video, it would put you in the environment. That's what we want. That's what you want. Yeah, and so that's what this is for. When yeah. we, I was working on the Steam uh, PC Gamer Steam Edition back in the day, yeah. and we did a similar kind of thing where we went into Portal and we, you know, stood in spot and we took a bunch of screenshots in every direction and we stitched them all together and we kind of created this thing where you could check out the game without actually owning it. But having it in stereo is practically magical. I mean, I can't wait to see how that works because if they're, I, I don't even understand the technology behind that. But to actually be able to do parallax with a screenshot, I mean, how are they? I mean, it's re-rendering. How are they doing? Because your eyes aren't in the same position, so they have to rotate around a center point. Mm -hmm. um, I I want to see it. Unfortunately, you can't download any samples yet. But no, you can. They have examples up on their project site of the, the screenshots. But they're just but 2D screenshots. I want to yeah. see some stereo yeah, samples. Yeah. Look forward. To I'm that. looking at one from the witness right now, and this is awesome. And just for the in-browser You'll be able to, to take insane resolution screenshots, too. Yeah. Like, like 32x your native resolution, mm -hmm. which is, that's a resolution I don't even think Photoshop can open. Right. I mean, it's insane. Right. I mean, it's one of those things, th this is what makes video games cool, because it, it, they are all sandboxes, because they're all being rendered in real time. So creatively, you can do so much more yeah. to share your experience with a video game or promote a game uh, than you can when you're talking about a, you know, a, a, a movie or, or any other type of medium. Um, it does, you know, it will bridge, and, and, and I don't know how this will work for VR games, and will work for VR games. Why wouldn't it, why would it be different? Because in the VR game, you already can move the camera, mm -hmm. and it's rendered in stereo. Like, what I would love is for a way for them to, 
I mean, I think it's more it's more important for VR games to be able to show VR games in an interesting way for non-VR users. Right now, VR game screenshots don't look good because they're they're all warped and they're all stereo. Warped. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they don't illustrate VR. So, yeah. like, I don't know. Like, these are all promotional problems that need to be solved. Like VR video and yeah. and, 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 and games. They had some other. Uh, you're going to talk about the other features they announced, like the multi projection thing. That sounds kind of interesting. Yeah, it's a new type of rendering. Um, so, if you have like a tri monitor setup where you have three monitors in front of you. Um, and the ones on the side are angled slightly, they're going to re-warp that so that it looks more like a true window into a universe rather than something that is mm. inaccurately warped because you've bent mm-hmm. your monitors. Mm-hmm. So I guess you'll be able to tell it what angle you have your monitors at, and it'll re-warp the space, the game, so that it actually looks like you know, a window, like a bay, like a bay window. Um, or th- there's, they're also doing it for VR, they're saying, so that they're doing actually eight projections, four per eye, that is concave so that you're lo- it's supposed to warp the game better so that it looks better. I don't understand the VR aspect, but it's interesting that you know they're putting this power to use for uh, for multi-monitor VR. I kind of understand the VR aspect, and we are diving into VR minute territory. Sorry. Uh, let, let's let's pocket this this conversation for that. Okay. Um, let's get through a bunch of other uh, technology news. Uh, Microsoft announced that they are gonna they have a, a patch coming for Windows 10 that will finally unlock frame rates. Uh, this has been a problem for Windows Universal Windows programs. It's about time. Yeah. What, so, what is it locked down now? So uh, Universal Windows programs for which you can buy, if you buy games through the Windows 10 store, for example, Rise of the Tomb Raider uh, was a big one. Um, previously, you had frame rates, I believe, locked to 30. What? Um, <laughs> Oh my! I, 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 I might be wrong about that because I don't buy games from the Windows Store, um, but it was like it was a huge deal, uh, and they're also now supporting G-Sync and uh, AMD's FreeSync uh, for those games, uh, UWP games. Um, I don't think it's. I mean, these small steps help, and they're the right thing to do, but gamers are still buying their games from Steam. Yeah, like yeah. games like it's not really changing anything. No, this is just going back to the way Win Thirty Two was, though. So I mean, it's overdue, but it's not going to be a huge shift. Um, ooh, ooh, did we get to talk about Viv? Yeah. Okay. So moving on. Uh, at TechCrunch Disrupt New York uh, this week, um, the creators of Siri, which left Apple. Uh, when Siri got bought, they had been working on secretly on another digital assistant, which is called Viv, and they first showed the first public demo of it. Now, what's interesting about Viv, Jeremy? It's, it has a it programs its own tree of and how to uh, graph the knowledge that it's been requ- that's been requested, which apparently is is a big deal. I I don't fully understand. Uh, okay, so I guess what Siri is locked down to specific services that Apple wants it to be locked down to. Whereas Viv is more open-ended and it can connect to any API that, you know, Viv wants to. And so supposedly like, they're going to open it so that anybody else can connect into it in the same way that we can connect to Alexa. So you could do anything from like payment to millions. Reservations anywhere you want. Yeah. yeah. So with any service that can connect to it. So I guess it's supposed to be more of an open thing, but what they're, what they're saying is a big deal is this self-programming aspect to it. Right. So that when you, 
pose a query within 10, 20 milliseconds, it programs its own you know, path to gain that knowledge. Right. So the way I understand it is if you think of how a uh, service like Siri or Alexa uh, taps, it gives you responses, they're looking at a knowledge graph, which is basically a big Excel sheet, right? More complicated than that. But they take, they parse your query and they, they understand what type of question you're asking, but also, um, and then they find that, that database and then correlate your, your variables and then find the answer and then feed it back. Um, but it's not very deep because, and that's why you can only ask it of certain things because it only has, it has to find, it has to have the right databases for every type of it's question. It's only asking, you're asking basic questions that have yeah. a, a single answer. Right. And apparently what Viv can do in the way it's designed from the ground up isn't just one, a stack of databases. You can actually, it's on t databases on top of databases that they can create in real time as it's understanding your question. Um, now, that whole idea that it's, it's stackable of inquiries, so it's, you ask one question, and then from that question, it'll generate a new, a new program to, find the, to, to lock in the subsequent versions of it, uh, gives it more contextual awareness for your questions. Uh, and the other thing they were talking about is that it will have some more memory, so over time. So because it's generating all these new databases and all these new programs as you, as you train it, um, you can ask it things and it'll have contextual awareness of what you've asked before. And, and just so listeners know, so the questions that he asked, like one of the questions they asked during the demo was, will it be warmer, will it be warmer than 70 degrees near the Golden Gate Bridge after 5 p.m. the day after tomorrow? Which is an oddly specific question. Uh, and it was able to answer with a really specific result related to that. So what I'm excited about is, you know, you were driving up to the office this morning. It might be interesting to ask, like, is it better for me to look for parking on 7th or 8th Avenue right now? Mm -hmm. Which is, again, it's like as a human, you can figure, OK, these are very it's, it's not that difficult to parse that question and as long as you have the data sets available. But for a technology like Siri or Alexa, that is an impossible question because it has no idea what you're asking. Um, I, un unless someone coded that in manually, like that, that specific type of question. So the types of question you can ask uh, Viv are way more or, or infinitely more complicated than the types of question you can ask Siri or Alexa because it can generate understandings of what questions are in real time. I wonder if the interaction that most users have with uh, this kind of AI, it needs that level of complication. Or do we just want these simple questions that we ask them right now to just work better? It's a really good, that's a really good point because your brain has always, even with Google search, your brain has been trained to ask the simple questions uh, because you know you'll get the best results. And to, to word your questions, to word your queries in a way, like the, the, the limitations of the system have, tr have trained your interaction models with the system. But how much would we like to be freed of that? Exactly. And if we were freed of that, then is that training still needed? Because at some, it's not perfect, and they, they won't be perfect for a long time. So does opening that up uh, give you more frustrated when it doesn't work, or is there a natural progression for, for our interaction with these, these AI? I'm hoping that there's like a micro version of this uh, comp of the ability to ask a complicated question actually means that I can ask a simple question in innumerable ways. 
And I'm, ho I'm hoping that that's the actual result here, mm -hmm. is that I can now ask in natural language in any way that I want, um, and I'll get the answer that I want quickly. What, so, but what I, what I really, really want more than any of this is just is a, is a, the ability to be understood. I just want to be able to say things in a natural way and get the microphone to hear me well, get the software to interpret it correctly. So it's less important to you, uh, to use Kishore's example, for an AI system to be able to find something as specific as parking availability for a specific time uh, on that day in a certain street than it is for you to be able to ask something simple like the weather in a very in innumerable ways. Yes, and and have it understand me no matter what you know accent I have or whether you know the tone of my voice. I completely agree. I think the limitation for it's easier for us as users to understand the limitations of what a system can feed us, what type of responses, um, than it is to have an infinite like to, to not know. Oh, okay, because the system's more robust, I can ask anything. Uh, I don't want to be able to ask anything. I want to be, ask, be able to ask a specific number of things in any number of ways, in a more natural ways. Yeah, and it would be nice to be able to chain requests too. You know, that's one thing that I that I think Alexa can't do. Right, the that, memory. That if I could, if it could, if I could say Alexa, stop the timer and play the Beatles. If she could do both of those things, mm. that would be great. Ah, oh, okay. And I, it sounds like this is exactly what Viv is going to be great at. Because that, right. that that type of instruction where you're chaining commands uh, is wouldn't work for a serial Alexa because that hasn't been programmed in. Um, and here, that's just taking two different requests and creating a new program right. on the fly to be able to handle it. I wouldn't mind some prediction in Alexa. There's a few questions I ask Alexa every day, right including the weather. And for it to just know from memory that I'm going to ask that question and say, hey, do you want to know what the weather is going to be today? Well, Google does that to some extent. Google now has that a little bit more integrated but it it does it through a screen interface so it, i think it would be interesting for that memory to be used at least short term and predictive and it goes back to what i said last week about i think some type of screen interface is going to be essential for these always on devices and not just on your maybe on your watch for apple um, but maybe on alexa like i really believe if you're going to have a hub in the home that has a omnidirectional mic put a screen on it or give it the ability to project on the fly, on your ceiling or on the wall. Yeah, it's perfectly natural. Uh, mm -hmm. She, I say she, uh, Alexa w does want to show you things sometimes. Mm -hmm. So that makes perfect sense. Yep. Um, moving on, uh, future products. Okay, uh, also global PC shipments have gone down. Uh, there is a report that, and this is when I say global PC, PC includes everything from a tablet to a desktop, um, fell 13%. Where is the crash happening? I imagine like tablets are crashing. Uh, well, everyone's using their phone now. Yeah, and uh, the, the, certainly there's always going to be an audience for PCs, but it seems like it, it's more of the uh, content producers. Did, did VR have any dent? I think VR no dent. HTC filed. I mean their their reports and nothing but losses. Ooh, well, nothing. I mean, and and that's to be expected because they're the vast majority of their business is smartphones. Which is why they started, you know, they they split off through another division to focus just on VR. Just just reiterates, it would be so wonderful to see some numbers on unit sales, mm -hmm. which we haven't seen at all. We'll save that for the VR minute. But uh, man, this isn't surprising, but it's just continuing trend. Is there any like bright spots in this in this sector at all? Apple's doing well <laughs> on, on their PC shipments. Um, 
the thing that troubles me most, and you know, down thirty percent is a is a huge number, and it, you know, the PC market has been mature for some time. You know, VR is something that we hope will reinvigorate the PC business, but that's there's a lot a of arguments. That's gonna be a blip in history before it has, it's it hits it's the mobile. Phones. Exactly yeah. right. The, yeah. the, the, everyone agrees that it's gonna be mobile, um, and it's gonna be on on the phones. And my fear is that they're just because of sales not doing anything. You know. People will always need laptops, I think, to some extent, and there will be a segment of users that will always want to have desktop computers. Then we just won't see the R and D get put into uh, research and in, in, into pr making products for the, that audience. Now, companies like Nvidia, they can make a nice business uh, developing video cards for a very small market for gamers. Um, and what's nice is even with the explosion of mobile. PC gamers are still, and even on console, there are still PC, tons of PC gamers. So, you know, the niche market will continue to exist, and it's it's never going to be an explosion, but that, I think maturity is a good thing. Yeah. Sure. Uh, phones. Uh, new Moto X. Uh, rumors are the new X Moto X will have a modular back. <laughs> okay. Is, I, is that, I hate being snarky about stuff, but... Is that exciting? Yeah. That's my question too. Now, I I think there's a, you know, you look at the Samsung phones and their glass back, glass front. Um, I would love to see what returns to aluminum back phones. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so that will be an option. You be able to pop on an aluminum back. Yeah. All right. And the Moto X, they have this, they have their wood backings and their bamboo backings that that they've liked before. What about a modular back with like a battery, like a thicker battery component? So LG G5 tried to do some of that with the modular bottom, that attachment, and it has not been received well. Yeah, I can't imagine this will be received any differently. There'd have to be a port, right, for the power to enter the, the phone. They, they, according to the pictures that were leaked, there are these pins oh, on so the back. You can so, have smart backs? Yeah, you can have smart backs and you can put like different cameras on it or like better okay. speakers or a battery pack but hmm. even in all of those cases are you going to carry around these extra you know modular pieces mm -hmm. you know are you going to be like i'm going to have a heavy phone day time to tap on my like that seems crazy but that's the argument that lg and moto Rola seem to be making that people want the modularity and then and that super positive response to like a uh, project aura the, cons uh, the user response I, they like people like the idea that you can swap out things on your yeah, phone. Yeah, but people are wrong. <laughs> but people, but I think, yeah, what the takeaway is that what people say they like conceptually isn't where they're spending their money because having the more most convenient and simple experience and maybe, you know, the most marketable experience um, is it still gets your dollars. Now, I could see the modular working if, if there was, like, upgrades as opposed to it being modular. Like, I could get... I could buy an extra gig of RAM and stick it on the back, or I could buy like an up upgrade to the lens on the camera or something like that. Uh, whereas an upsell, but not the swap. I, I don't think swapping is, is reasonable. It's be a, it'll be a real bummer if they change the, the way that it fits for the next version too. Uh, speaking of cameras, a little bit of camera news. Um, there was a report from uh, Digicam that Canon is releasing, going to be releasing a macro lens. And what's interesting about this lens is that it has a ring light around it. I like it. You're I all like about the that. ring lights right now. Ring lights are awesome. Powered by the battery on the camera. That is a very good question. 
I think it would have to be power built into the lens. Ow. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Because uh, it's hard to get that light in there, right, without hitting shadows when you're that mm -hmm. close to the... Mm because you have to be real on the side of it. Now, this is a design that I'm really curious why it hasn't made over its way over the phones. The, the, the design of a light on the back of a camera has always been um, just an LED yeah. kind of just right next to the lens. But isn't that fine for most uses? Yes, but I wish that, that light was controllable. Like, I wish you could control the intensity. If uh -huh. I could take a portrait and the light was, you know, and you're right, the lens on and uh, the sensor on the phone is so small that the location of the light and the, the placement of the light is less of a, a factor. But if the light was surrounding the lens or, or better, more evenly distributed around the lens, let's say, and also if I can control the intensity of it, just illuminate just enough and change also the, the color of the light maybe. Color temp, yeah. Color temp of light, that would be awesome. Do you think there's a market for for something like that, given how phone photography has taken off as a, as an arena for professionals? So I don't think it's even for professionals. I think things like Instagram uh, have trained people to spend more time with their photos. Heavy, heavy social media users. And I know a lot of people on Instagram take photos and then edit after the fact, but a lot of people also take the photo in Instagram, you know, in the application. And, you know, it's not, you know, part, there is a huge benefit to be able to just flip on the phone, press it and have it work and take a great photo. Uh, but I think people are more open to the idea of spending time adjusting their photos when they're, as they're taking it. I've been impressed by the dual tone flash on the S, on the 6. Have you played with that much? I don't like the, I still don't like the flash. I mean, it's better than the last one. Whenever, I, I never intentionally use the flash, but when <laughs> I actually accidentally do, I'm impressed by the skin tones. I think mm -hmm. they did a good job with that. Uh, there was a Hyperloop event yesterday. Oh, so, we got to talk about this. I'm super excited about it's, this Hyperloop yep. development. <laughs> <laughs> what went on? So wait a minute. Just to give the background here, Elon Musk released his grand scheme for the Hyperloop that he didn't actually want to focus on right now, but he said anyone else could. Yes. And so someone has taken him up on that offer? Sort of-ish. So like the original design of the Hyperloop was a low pressure tube. Think a little bit like Futurama, those tubes that move people around. Uh -huh. And it would use sort of almost like compressed air to sort of, and, and some magnets for you to, to glide down. Well, they've been doing some partnerships with other groups to rethink the technology. So it's a little bit of what you're talking about where they opened it up and it's like, anyone can work on this. Uh, but they also reached out and did some specific testing with groups. And this new design is really interesting. It comes out of a group from Lawrence, a discovery from the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory right here in our backyard. And it's basically a form of magnetic levitation um, that's called passive levitation that uses magnets in this specific design called a Hallback system or Hallback array, sorry, where you basically have magnets attached to the bottom of the train. Mm -hmm. And normally there's a cement, like a, a kind of a symmetrical field that magnets put off. But you can arrange them in this array, the Hallback array, where it essentially in one direction is canceled out and uh, amplified in the other direction. So now you can create levitation over a track, but... At any speed? Yeah, it's in motion is when this happens. So as long as this is is a moving, you can, you can do this, uh, this levitation effect. So the interesting part is that you don't have to constantly power it with... Uh, substations along the way, which is the limitation of, of normal like maglev trains, is they have to have power 
all across the the tracks, which is expensive. It's expensive infrastructure to build. So this is still in that sort of tube design kind of uh, item. It's an upgrade on the train itself, uh, but now it just needs like a big, long, long, long uh, uh, track of aluminum. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing special about that aluminum. So you're saying once it's levitated, it can be sort of propelled and mm-hmm. then without power. No, I mean, it still has power, but the power is on board the train. No, I understand, but yeah. the, the levitation doesn't require power. Uh, well, it it does require power to, to to some of the magnets, but that effect, if there's loss of power, mm-hmm. it will still levitate a little bit until okay. the motion stops. Okay. Because it, the levitation is powered by movement. I would expect that yeah. motion to be pretty constant with very, with so little friction. Yes. That's pretty awesome. It so is really awesome to use this kind of array. They're demoing it. What? A version of it soon. So Hyperloop Technologies now is now called Hyperloop 1, and the propulsion mechanism is going to be tested today. Uh, they say, according if everything goes according to plan, a 10-foot sled containing the propulsion molar will zip for two seconds at 116 miles per hour what? and should crash into a pile of sensor. They're testing that propulsion wow. mechanism Okay. Today, this isn't the you know the end product though because there are other competing technologies that I think they they've been working with. So, mm. but it, I think it's really interesting. The dream L A L A San Francisco to L A in thirty minutes. But they're building a train like a regular train, right? Are they building something? No, the high speed rail. It's high, still moving. It's still moving happening, forward. but it, yeah. it's not due to be finished until we're about sixty or seventy years old. Do they get over the uh, the problem of the? The, the people in Central California not wanting to have the train over their marshlands? Not totally. But so, like, the ini- the initial high-speed rail track in California, I think, is slated to go from, like, Bakersfield to not all the way to San Jose. So it, it's also not going to useful locations yet. Mm. So, so we, like, 50s or 60s. Yeah. You mean my 40s. <laughs> 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 Um, well, before the Hyperloop and even the high-speed rail becomes a real thing, another mode of transportation that may become more of a reality, before we all hit our, our late 40s, uh, is drone delivery. And Amazon, of course, is the company right now at the forefront publicly in researching drone deliveries. They just picked up a couple of computer vision experts over uh, that used to be uh, from Austria that used to work at Microsoft Research um, to tackle the problem of mapping the area that drones going to fly in real time to be able to navigate, um, which is cool. I think it's going to be a, 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 big, a big deal. Uh, so there's an article on The Verge uh, where they, they talk about how why the rec- they, they need to create geometry as they're flying um, in order for the drone to understand, it, have some situational awareness. And I think like this is something that could trickle down also to consumer drones, um, in addition to the commercial ones, whether they're for delivery or not. So are they going to be flying over populated areas? I think initially no. Okay. But that, it still needs to understand the terrain. Yeah, absolutely. Power lines, mm-hmm. trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good idea. Yep. Um, on the media front, there's a couple uh, couple bits of media news. Amazon announced that they're doing a new digital video service. Uh, to compete with YouTube and Hulu, and they're going to let creators create shows and upload them and to distribute on Amazon and get paid either by minutes watched uh, on Prime subscriptions uh, or get an ad share. So they're, they're trying to move in on this whole uh, independent creator business. 
What do you think? You're an independent creator here at Tested Norm. <laughs> I think it makes sense for everyone to be on as many platforms as possible. Uh, okay. I think that it, it, it depends on the barrier. If you can create one video and post it for Amazon, uh, YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat, and wherever, um, I think it's a smart thing to do. But I think it's even smarter to create the right type of content for the right platform, the audience on that platform. Why, so, why do we need something to compete with YouTube? It's just where the eyeballs are. Yeah, but what, that's what I'm saying. Everyone's on YouTube. Not everyone's on YouTube. Why not? Because well, a lot of people are on Facebook and a lot of people are on Twitter. And well, yeah, but those are services. No, but you're saying who's on Amazon service though? That's the, the, and no, that's the, the biggest question. The platform that I'm not I'm surprised isn't mentioned here is Twitch because and Amazon Twitch. owns oh. it already. Right, right. So what's the integration with whatever this is with Twitch? This is this is video on demand. This is not live video. I think they're I, I think. And I don't know how Amazon's as a as a company how they operate whether the teams are as integrated because Twitch operates as a like they're basically an independent company they have their own sales teams and stuff like that so I wouldn't be surprised if this does not have any Twitch integration that this is just for mm. a way to sell um, a value add for Prime Prime Video subscriptions uh, which they now offer separately uh, and also more stuff for Fire TV. All right, I could see one possible reason why I would use this service. What if instead of, what if along with my Prime membership, I can watch videos, the same videos that I can watch on YouTube, I can watch on Amazon service ad-free? That's exactly what they're talking about. There you go. Because they would divvy up Prime money to those users, or to the, to the creators uh, based on time watched. And so, like, and that's, that's a really good point. Then at that point, they're competing with maybe Hulu, right? People who are paying for Hulu and trying to getting their limited ad uh, videos. Um, but they have to make a more compelling, you know, viewing. They have to make Fire TV basically more appealing. Um, they want to get people on their apps in in the Fire and Amazon Video app, which I don't use unless they have the exclusive content. Hundred percent, right? Um, I think the type of person who's going to watch the content on Amazon because it, that's the experience where you're loading up something like on Apple TV or on a Fire. I mean, not Apple TV on a Fire TV. Uh, or in your web browser uh, is going to be very similar to the person watching something on demand on YouTube or Netflix. Um, so I don't think user creators need to change their content all that much as opposed to if you are making a video and you want to put it on Facebook, I wouldn't put the same video on Facebook as I put on YouTube or on, on Twitter or on Snapchat. If it was more exclusive or curated, yeah, I'd be much more interested. Uh, uh, than this model where I can watch it elsewhere in much more fr- uh, UI friendly apps. Seems like a very expensive yeah. service to offer too. I, I didn't know Amazon really had that much money to throw around. They, oh yeah. Do they? The AWS makes so much money for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Spotify, another s- subscription service, uh, also now diving into some exclusive video content. Uh, they have partnered with some... Uh, some celebrities to make shows. Now, these are shorter shows. These aren't full half-hour shows. They're more YouTube-style shows. Uh, but they go, they want people to watch video on Spotify. It, hasn't Pandora been doing this for a long time? They've had a video group for a while. Uh, and so I've been wondering how successful that is because uh, I don't recall like hearing great things about how well that's gone down. 
I, I completely agree. I think just because a service has a paying member base that uses uh, and a, a big user base doesn't mean you can give them content that they're going to like because uh, they use your service for a specific purpose. Totally agree. And they interface with your application in a, in a certain way. Um, all right. Uh, a couple more things. Uh, Tesla 3, uh, Elon Musk, speaking of him again, uh, said in an earnings call that it's likely they're going to be behind on production. They're not going to meet their mid-2007 start date to making the 2017. Model 3. 2017 start date for the Model 3. So hopefully they'll still be on time for end of 2017. They're not. It's going to be early 2018, I think. Before what? Before Before anything? Before the first Tesla 3s. I don't know. They're hoping to ship, I think, 200,000 in 2017, which is a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. So what if they only ship a a, a fifth of that? That's still, that's a a good number of cars. Yeah, I think that would would be good news regardless. Um, I mean, 200,000 would cover most of the people who... who That's right. That's right. But they're shooting for, they're shooting for, what, 500,000 capacity? Right. What I would, uh, I would be hugely disappointed if at the end of 2017 they make the goal of having cars out by saying, "Oh, a couple dozen cars are out, like the founders' cars or whatever." Right. Now, um, if they release, they should release a, a good chunk, at least 20 percent, because you, otherwise the market's not going to be satisfied, and mm-hmm. you're going to get uh, all sorts of complaints. I'd rather them take their time because the if the battery, the 200 miles, uh, isn't done right then everything is is going to fall by the wayside. And yep. I don't think they want to see recalls on the on the Model 3 related to anything along those those lines. So granted, I haven't pre-ordered, but I would say 2018 seems more like a friendly way to go. Yeah, you're probably right. Now what if Apple comes out in 2018 and says you can next in, in a month you can pre-order a they won't you can buy. They they won't because a, where is their biggest warehouse in all of the known world <laughs> hiding? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. I mean, the amount of infrastructure you have to build for something at that for cars to be manufactured at that scale. Now, here's another thing from this earnings call. It's also brought to light that Tesla's losing a lot of money. It's always lost money. It's always, but they, Elon promised they would make money this quarter, and they didn't. Uh, did he promise that? He said. He said uh, there. I think the expectation was that they would. Um, what did he say? Uh, yeah, there's, they suffered a loss of two hundred eighty-three million dollars in the quarter, twelfth consecutive loss, and he yeah, he had said they no longer suffer lo- suffered losses by the first quarter of twenty sixteen, which was this quarter, <laughs> and they're still in the red, deep red. Um, do you think Apple's just biding their time? See if they can buy Tesla? If Tesla no. keeps on... Uh, wouldn't that be something? I think that they're a natural fit. I would love for Apple to buy Tesla. I don't see it happening. If I, you're an investor in Tesla, like you, I'm just like, ride the train right now because they're going to uh, dominate the EV market here in about a year and a half. Yeah, yeah. No, certainly the Tesla stock didn't do well after this quarter, but I think two years from now, you're going to wish you bought. That's that's not financial advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if the, if people are listening to this podcast for financial advice, they're in trouble. I, I agree with you. I do think that they're clearly long term. Tesla's. Uh, we haven't seen any hint the, of another EV that's going to challenge the Model Three. Well, sure, the Volt, just not aesthetically. Uh, yeah. Well, that's a big problem. Yeah, but it's it's certainly a, you know it's a solvable one. So how much is Tesla actually valued at? Because 
the, right now they're you know they're, if they're burning two hundred upwards of three hundred million dollars a quarter, and you know they made four hundred million dollars on deposits for the car, mm-hmm. right? Which they only made four hundred million on on deposits for the Model Three pre-orders, which is it's a lot of money. That's still a lot of money, right? Yeah. That's four hundred thousand cars at a thousand dollars each. Um, and you know their their catch reserves are like one point eight billion dollars, so and they've lost they've lost you know upwards of three and a half billion dollars mm-hmm. since they've incorporated. Uh, what is what would be the price of Tesla? Well, you mean if it were for sale? Yeah, I don't I have no idea. Yeah, um, no. it would be too expensive right now. Elon wants to hold it. He wants to. He clearly sees this is going to be a success. The pre-orders have been off the scale for the Model 3. They've just got to get it to market because every one of those $1,000 down payments is going to turn into $35,000, What if Tim Cook said, Elon, sell me Tesla and I will put you on Mars? You, I'll, I'll let you die on Mars. He doesn't need the, Tim Cook to put him on Mars. <laughs> yeah, he's going to put Tim Cook on Mars. <laughs> what like can a- you? The only thing that somebody could offer him is if... Uh, so if Tim Cook has a secret arc reactor at mini scale, <laughs> then he can go to Elon Musk and be like, here's this thing. Sell me Tesla for that. I mean, we might get to the point where Tesla's for sale because they're just burning cash or the economy dips. But they're about to release a car that's going to dominate the marketplace, mm-hmm. at least it seems like for at least a decade. That's what I'm saying. That's worth so much money. And I guess my my hope for Tesla is they, they overcome the production problems and the scheduling problems, it, it, which is it's an incredibly complicated thing to do because you, these things can't just, they don't always operate on a timetable, testing and perfecting and future, you know, designing future technologies uh, like batteries. You're saying you hope they have the runway to release a, a great car? Yes, and that they can, they can stay on track on that runway. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what they're missing. Like, is it money or is it talent? Um, I think it's time is all they're missing because uh, we're talking about a massive leap forward in terms of capability. 100 to 200 miles is no small feat. So is, is this, if time was a problem, then were they, did they jump the gun? I, I mean, I don't, it doesn't seem that way. I don't it seems think th- like they're there. I don't see a problem here. I mean, it, the success of the pre-orders proved everything. So now, obviously, if yeah, I think if he needed money, he could find it. There's billionaires, billionaires out there willing to you make crazy investments. This is not a crazy investment. This is a smart one. So I, I think if he needs the money, he'll be able to find it in order to get through the next couple of years. All right. I guess it's the same. Same. Uh, you can apply the same reasoning to Magic Leap. All that investment, and they haven't released a product, and it's all about anticipation yeah. right now. There's a story that happened a couple uh, December's ago where Tesla and SpaceX were on the brink of bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And Elon, you know, they were days from it. And Elon made some phone calls, got $20 million to get him through the new year. And then they got a $1.6 billion contract through NASA. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But there's no $1.6 billion contract from the consumers. It's cars. They got to put cars out there. That, I think that's, a, that's the equivalent. But, is it, is but it it's, more it's difficult, an assured thing. Right. Is it more difficult to send a capsule to the ISS to fulfill a billion-dollar contract with NASA than it is to get... Fifty thousand dollars, fifty thousand next generation electric cars out in the market. What is a more difficult task? <laughs> <laughs> that is the definition of apples and oranges. But I, I would think actually the ramping up manufacturing is harder. 
What is this number? I just did the calculation. It's fourteen billion dollars. If they sell all the cars at 30000 $30, dollars. No, at forty. At forty thousand. Which is which each. is reasonable. Right. It's a me- it's a medium. Right. If they sell all three hundred and fifty thousand, if they don't get any more pre orders, that's money, man. Fourteen billion dollars or, or what Apple makes in a quarter. <laughs> that's just mean. It's just true. <laughs> Moment of science. Hey, what'd you guys do on Monday morning? Um, I watched live streams of people watching the. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I did. So here in the San Francisco Bay Area, it was foggy. Carl got his revenge on us, so we couldn't watch the transit of Mercury live. I think most of the places here uh, were fogged in. There might have been a few places uh, like on Mount Tam that might have been above the the cloud cover. But the transit of Mercury only happens once every about 10 years, and uh, our orbits align with Mercury only in May and October, I want to say. It might be November. Uh, so that um, it, this is an incredible feat to watch Mercury cross the sun. I watched a live feed from MIT. I, I thought it was great. What did you think? I thought it was very cool. I, I was way more impressed by the footage that came out afterward. NASA put out this amazing video. That came from SDO, the Solar Dynamics Observatory, which is this telescope that's pointing at the sun. Um, and uh, they did a time lapse of it crossing, yeah. and it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. You know, if, have you seen the movie um, Sunshine? No. Danny Boyle Sunshine? Yeah, Danny Boyle, right. I, um, I only got halfway through it. I didn't like yeah, it. Yeah, because the last third is no good. Uh, but the first third, I mean, it's 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 like a you know sci-fi story. Humans are sent to reboot the sun. You know, it's the core, but the sun. Um, That's not a good opening line to recommend a film. <laughs> Regardless, it's it's a beautiful film, and there are shots in the film where they they transit that you see planets or going across the sun, and what NASA put out that video totally look like like sunshine got it right hmm. it, it's really amazing there's actually a really great shot from the sdo that people can check out where it shows mercury next to sunspots uh on the on the surface and those sunspots are almost as big as the planet of mercury you always hear about sunspots but the scale of them uh in reference there was amazing and just one quick tangent do you remember that kickstarter that you were all a rage about about the the moon with mm-hmm. the Ring of light going yes, around I, it. It's $710. It was so expensive, but I still really want one. So what I really wanted after watching the live stream of this is I've never seen an accurate model of the solar system with the transits in motion Yeah, uh, around like an illuminated sun in the center. What because do you mean, like where they are right now? Yeah, because all of them, I got this uh, device for my son called Moon in My Room that actually like mimics the phases of the moon on his wall. But I would love to see one that's actually accurate for all the planets and in the right shapes. I, I don't think they can do scale because it's just too far. Mm-hmm. Because everything I've ever seen is always a circular o- orbit, but they're elliptical and, you know, they're timed in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Oh, that'd be amazing. Uh, anyways, somebody out there, start that Kickstarter. You will shut up and take my money so immediately. I referenced Sunshine and it, there is a great scene. I just linked it to you guys in the show notes. Um, it's a Vimeo clip where they watch the transit of Mercury from their spaceship. Oh, really? And Oh, wow. That's neat. Yeah, I put the links there. You can, I'm you can watching load it up the right SDO, now. The SDO video. It's stunning. And this clip 
even though it's, it's labeled transit of Venus, I think it was transit of Mercury, but they're watching from their ship and it's like, it could be a trailer for NASA and the transit of Mercury would happen. Cause this it, feels like the PR uh, version of the transit. <laughs> yeah. it, no, totally. It totally is. But it's like these, like if you, if we watch the clip from sunshine, it's, it's, it accurately represents the awe that I think we all had watching that real NASA clip. This is the seven se- seconds of transit. Yeah, that, that's awesome. We'll we'll put a link up. Anyway, the reason I'm talking about transit beyond the fact that Mercury transited is the Kepler team, which is a, a space telescope that's designed to look for other planets, exoplanets outside of our solar system, made an announcement yesterday. 1,284 planet, exoplanets found. Wow. I mean, that is an amazing. So we've found about... Three thousand, a little more than three thousand exoplanets. Kepler's found uh, twenty three hundred of them. Can define exoplanet? Planet outside of our solar system. Wow! And it uses the same methodology of a planet crossing in front of a star, and it's slightly dimming the light from that star to detect it. Got it. Now, this is really fa- uh, what's really fascinating about Kepler is that um, this time around. Uh, they went through an automated verification process. So they designed an algorithm to actually sift through the piles of data. So all of the reference from this came from a July 2015 uh, survey, and they just had a computer do it and then you know went over it and made sure the calculations were right. So they're 99% sure that they have 1,284 candidate planets now. And even better than that, two are almost exactly the same uh, two planets almost exactly receive the same energy from their star that earth does that's the important part Cla- the, class the, m no not class m necessarily because it's a ratio right so uh the vast majority of exoplanets are massive because it's the, the way we can detect them are them blocking light from their stars uh class m in star trek lore is a the, it represents a distance between a planet is from their, the sun, Jesus. so it's habitable. Class M being right M, right in the middle of the alphabet. So class L would be a little further away, Oh, colder, is that how they came up with and it? And would be closer. And they, there were episodes in Star Trek where class L planets, super cold. So the range is really wide. Like the difference between N, L, N, L, M, M and N, not like not just 10 degrees. It's talking about like, it's freezing cold, like Arctic and, and, and uh, tropics. Um, class M, it doesn't really work. Because it's not just about distance; it's also size of star and size of planet. Right. So on. what Kishore is talking about is the two that exoplanets we know of that are that receive the same amount of energy mm-hmm. as Earth would. That's more exciting than a planet being the same distance right. as Earth is from from the sun. So that's amazing. You know, another thing that we almost lost Kepler a couple of years ago. It has the, these wheels on the actual satellite that that basically tune it and keep it pointed at the same uh, area of space. Well, one of those wheels malfunctioned and it's down. And a number of the Kepler engineers from different areas of NASA did an AMA where they talk about the more recent failure where they um, basically had a software crash on it. Uh, They were able to recover from that first wheel failure by using, it's ingenious, they used pressure from from like solar energy to keep it aligned in a certain way, which is amazing. But uh, this week they did an AMA and they talked about the software problem and they basically had their internal bus overload and it put it in safe mode 
and um, it, it tried to prioritize tasks that it was given in safe mode. And one that was actually high priority came in and it couldn't execute it, which turned it into emergency mode. Uh, and so all of a sudden, basically, the, the satellite went coma for a couple days. And they were able to reboot it. And it seems to be fine right now. Uh, it's an amazing story. That's awesome. I mean, that, that justifies the time that NASA takes to fail-proof their software, which is forever. They're notorious for taking forever to get things you know, to launch. And one of the best parts about this is like uh, they don't know why what data came across that line that would have caused that failure, Ooh. and they probably will never know. <laughs> that's, the, that's one of those things. Like they might be able to test it if it was here and figure it out, but there's no way they're ever going to send it. Alien Borg, <laughs> Borg came by. Uh, the uh, other interesting part is looking to the future. The James Webb Telescope should launch in 2018. I think I've been saying that sentence for the past decade. It's famously over budget, famously behind schedule. So I think it might be 2019 by the time it launches. It's actually gonna look at some of these candidate planets from Kepler and try to do some analysis on the atmosphere of them, which is crazy. We might actually have an understanding of what makes up um, the uh, the conditions on these planets. It, right now we just know they exist and where they are located. Can't they do that with, is it spectro spectrography? Spectrometry. Spectrometry, of course. I'm sorry. And uh, uh, not really huh. from this distance because there's, uh, James Webb is going to be able to detect something using, uh, in infrared, using this sort of red shift that happens. And that's a limitation that Kepler has. It probably can't do that, hmm. do any sort of spectrometry uh, at that distance. Really exciting Kepler stuff. A uh, couple other things. Uh, Norm, one of your favorite groups at MIT Media oh, Lab, just goodness. came out with a new video. Ooh. The Tangible Media <gasps> Group. They make the, the Inform. Yes. They did. I have an update to the Inform now. It's called Materialable. Mm. So we talk about pixel density a lot. We talk about pixels. Uh, what about an actual 3D pixel? Right, a haptic pixel. Yeah. And so they designed the, and this was a part of Inform, is they've designed a physical table that has all these like little pixels on actuators. They look they, like about the size of a key on a keyboard. Exactly. And you can interact with them in a lot of different ways. Like you can basically press down, it, they interact with each other. So you can mimic like a drop of water hitting this table almost and rippling out. And you can create all of these different effects. Now you can project with material material bowl which is the name of this project you can project down on it and mimic sort of the behaviors of a lot of different classes of compounds even down to sand because they can mimic viscosity um all these different fluid dynamics it looks incredible what is what go ahead so much of it is in the actuators that power each of the pixels and how much control they have over that what's the benefit of doing this in real life rather than in vr or in just in a simulation so uh, that, that's an open question. I mean, that really goes to the heart of the design process. So let's say, I mean, one of the examples they give is if you had a table like this, uh, and this is really specific to you, what if you wanted to design something to print, like a rapid prototype uh, to 3D print? Well, you can create using this sort of haptic table a quick version that you sculpt almost right. and then send it to your printer. And you project forward to where the pixel density of these these are such that it would be, you know, instead of one inch by one inch, a millimeter by a millimeter, hopefully. Mm, right. 
right? And then, it, so it's, it's, you know, that's one example, sculpting and then having that information, that topographical information being immediately digitized, uh, but also um, communication. So if both you, if everyone has one of these tables at home somewhere, then I can, I can sculpt or put, put something on it that would immediately translate to your table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you could do that on a simulation too. You could do that in, inside my VR world. You could. Or it's a different experience because this is really, this is, you know, tactile in a way that VR will never be able to be. Right. And I guess I'm wondering what benefit does the tactileness have? Besides the obvious cool factor. It's a really cool video, but it also looks very expensive. Seems like a lot cheaper to do. In it's software. in a research lab, so it's priceless, right? <laughs> because they can't assign a price to <laughs> right, exactly. the work. Uh, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a, a good question, but we haven't seen VR designing experiences get there either. So we're we're you know two sides of different coins. Yeah. No, I, I think you make a very good point. Like, what does what do haptics bring to the experience that you can't? Well, I think your brain works so much better on with with haptics like that, it's it's just it's literally another sense yeah right um and if you are able to focus if you're able to and it could be incorporated with vr there's no reason why those things couldn't be couldn't work together mm -hmm. um anything else Kishore? yeah one last thing uh if you're any fans of the internet have probably noticed ublek on the internet all over the place ublek is that suspension of water and cornstarch that is a non-newtonian fluid it f flows like water but it resists uh like a solid and like the uh, the hydraulic press channel has used it recently there is the backyard scientist that shot projectiles at it uh using high-speed photography well, we had a paper released in the journal of, or what is it, the physical review letters that has finally potentially explained what is going on. And there's always been this argument that it's friction between um, uh, particles that's suspended uh, in, in, the, in the fluid that resists flow, and that's why we get that behavior, or that when you actually put pressure on this, um, the the particles are pushed together and they force the fluid out. So these are two different explanations. Well, it turns out that on a microscopic level, they've kind of indicated that both things are happening at the same time. Now, before you're like, why are researchers actually looking into Ublek, which is mostly used as like a experiment for kids, is because the applications of understanding this at a microscopic level can help design how we think about fluids moving through pipes and the the differential pressure that we can apply uh, for fluids to flow through those pipes to maximize um, their flow compared to the friction that's contained within that fluid in the space. Meaning we might be able to get more and different types of fluid through different uh, pumps much faster than before using this. Without wearing down and, yep. But mostly it's cool because we how can you understand Ublex. Tell me how we can apply it to hyperloops. There's no fluid. Well, there is a lot of fluid dynamics in, in hyperloops, but, mm -hmm. but no uh, actual fluid itself. But not, they're all Newtonian fluid, from what I understand. <laughs> not non Newtonian. All right. Uh, that's it for a moment of science uh, this week. But before we move on to our next segment, I do want to thank the sponsor of this week's episode of This Is Only a Test, and that sponsor is SIOI. SIOI has the perfect gift for gadget crazy dads and grads in your life. It's a new concept bringing mobile phone connectivity directly to an action camera, and it's called the SIOI Iris 4G. You have to see it to believe it. Just push a button on the side of the camera, and friends and family 
then join the action live. Imagine tagging along when your son goes out mountain biking or when your daughter is surfing those big waves or when dad is wake surfing and makes his first big trick. This is the future of connecting our families and friends together, making sure we don't miss a moment of the good stuff. And the Sioi Iris 4G is a unique gift that will be appreciated by everyone in the family, both near and far. Sioi has provided a special discount code just for listeners of this podcast. Use the offer code TEST, that's T-E-S-T, at checkout on Sioi.com. That's S-I-O-E-Y-E.com, and you'll save some cash. And thank them for sponsoring this week's episode of This Is Only a Test. And now it's time for... The VR Minute. Virtual reality this week. Never fails to make me smile. I love that intro. Thank Who's, you, Eric Lott. Who says the VR Minute? I say the VR Is VR that you? Is yeah. that all you? Yeah. Okay. Remember we did that segment, that session where I, I just I gave remember. out all those... And, and Kishore did the same thing. We'll need one for technology, too, but we don't have a title for that, the pop culture segment or Our the forthcoming segment. pinball segment is going to need one, too. Oh, well, we can, we can use both names. Yes, name suggestions first for the segment titles. VR Minute, A Moment of Science, those are all claimed. We've been testing, all claimed. So something for technology, something for pop culture, and something for pinball. But for the VR Minute... Uh, speaking of pinball, Jeremy, you published the PinSim Build Guide. Yeah, with your help. For thank you for organizing that. Um, I you know I passed Norm a Google Doc and he made it beautiful. Um, it was a ton of fun to finally get that out there because I've been getting a lot of tweets saying I'd love to build one. I just need to know how. So that's up on Tested. If you want to make a VR interface for pinball games, Tested.com is your destination. You've made some improvements since the initial video you did, too. I right? really did, yeah. No, th- huge thanks to a programmer named Zachary Little, who is just a genius. He programmed a way to turn a Teensy, which is a microcontroller, into a uh, Xbox 360 controller. So the computer doesn't even know. It's, it's, it doesn't have to run through any third-party stuff on the computer, which minimizes latency down to a, what is a real Xbox experience, which is... Fantastic, and I, I'm very happy with it. I think it's the only microcontroller um, gamepad emulator that actually supports Rumble too in existence. So this is this is something that I think has, you know, pr- uh, uses even outside of VR pinball. So it's a very cool library. If you just search PinSim Build Guide, you'll find the tested guide, which has photos and also links to GitHub. So Jeremy, yeah. your input game controller. Uh, all that code is on in GitHub. And there's some SDL files up on Thingiverse. If you've got a 3D printer, you can make some fun stuff. Very cool. Um, so not a ton of VR news out in, in this past week or so. Uh, we talked about Ansel a little bit um, on the NVIDIA side. Um, they're just slowly trickling more software, more games. There, I think there's something coming out this week, this graffiti VR. You guys see that? I got a ton of views. This is this a real thing? So it's a graffiti simulator, right, where it turns your Vive controller into a... Spray can. Spray can, but it's, you know, it's an interesting spray can because it can change colors as it's spraying, so you can, like, do rainbows. Mm -hmm. Or you set it to one color and you you can paint. What's interesting is that the the demo video, the the guy who's painting isn't a very good artist. (laughs) (laughs) It sells a million views. So he's just doing, like, words, but... uh, I think in the right hands, like Tilt Brush, it's going to be a pretty cool app. Yeah. Yeah. I think people are excited about that. Um, and then actual games. Uh, what are the games you've been playing, Jeremy, for VR? I know you've been you've liking the Hollow Ball. 
I love Hollow Ball. Um, again, the climb, um, obviously pinball effects, but I've actually been tinkering in Unity this past week. Oh, yeah, back I got this little bit of development. I decided it, now. I why not? Because this early days, it's exciting. Um, so yeah, I've been tinkering in Unity, making a little uh, racquetball game. Oh. So I've been playing VR racquetball with your own. Yeah. So with, with the vibe, you're, if mm -hmm. you're making a game, you're going to use controllers and. You're designing something for a bigger play space. Yeah, room it, scale play. I think. Space. Well, yeah. I mean, as much as you know, like it, like Hollow Ball. It's not it, like you said before. It's not so much about being able to move through space. It's the track controllers and a standing experience is most of the enjoyment. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. There's a lot of standing in one place, but it's it's a ton of fun. I just as an aside, I happen to think that racquetball or tennis, anything where you have one physics object swinging quickly, intending to hit another physics object is maybe is a pretty complicated problem to solve because there's you could have one frame where it's in behind another frame where it's in front yeah. and that collision is you have to do some inter um, interpretation and projection in order to like see if something hit uh, that that didn't get detected so it's it gets to be probably more hard than my first product should be plus trip the ergonomics of how you're holding the controller and how, what the expectations are yeah. for the objects like Physics it just sounds like not easy to do. Right, exactly. So I'm, I might transition to a shooting game. Uh, there's also people, speaking of the Vive, playing Minecraft on the Vive these days, uh, using an unofficial version port of Minecraft uh, for the HTC Vive and saying it's, it's really fun. I haven't done this yet. Well, the real one's got to be coming to the Rift soon, right? Because it's mm -hmm. already out on the Gear VR. Mm -hmm. um, what, how, is it difficult to get it up and running? Uh, from the instructions that I found this on Reddit R Vive, uh, it does not seem that difficult and even works with multiplayer. So this is straight up Minecraft um, that you just use with the headset and the Vive controllers. Do people like it? Yeah. People yeah. really like it. I wonder how, uh, like how much of an advantage it is versus, um, because the controllers, you're going to lose some uh, ability to do some of the build construction without a, a keyboard. So I'm wondering the, uh, if the Vive controllers are actually that much more efficient. I think it's more about the less about efficiency than about immersion. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and seeing the things you're creating from different angles easily, walking around them, or even uh, this, being able to see the scale in, in one to one. So that's something exciting. Um, there's Google I/O next week, and hmm. they're doing it at the Shoreline Amphitheater. So it's gonna it's a rock concert basically. But one of the things that's supposed to come out that people are anticipating is Android VR. Now, what could that mean if this is the just the next version of Google Cardboard? God, I hope not. I mean, I hope it is, but I hope it's well advanced. I hope it is more. How would you advance? How so? I want it to be better than the Gear VR. I wanted to have. I wanted to be fully contained like a substantial unit with inside-out tracking for motion tracking. That's mm. going to be the killer feature. I mean, it, it, whoever gets there first. So not just foam core. Well, yeah, not, not even <laughs> the, the material. I mean, it has, yeah. to be, it has to be able to support motion tracking. That's going to be what but gets people interested. Google's no. MO has always been, for at least cardboard, making it cheap and accessible by putting the phone that you already have into a cheap lens and housing system to view the 360 videos and photos and all this content, video content that people are creating. Uh, I feel like it's going to be more about, on the software side, what for Android VR ends up being, less about a hardware solution and more about giving developers easier ways to create experiences for cardboard. I'm not interested. Not, Absolutely. Yeah. No, okay. I, I hate cardboard. I hate that it is potentially dangerous for VR. I always have. Because it is the bare minimum for getting... 
Yet for, people are still in awe of it. You still don't see it as a gateway drug? No, I really don't. I see, I see it as a gateway drug that gets people sick, potentially. And it's so much so that it will turn them off from trying something that is actually more compelling and safe and less nauseating. Mm. All right. So if, even if it's not tracking, if it's just updated rendering, 3D rendering, which is iterating towards that, you wouldn't be satisfied. And creating APIs or um, you know, adding things like low persistence on specific certain hardware devices. No, not enough. Not enough. I mean, I've, you know, there's so much that other people are, are there's so much time other, other manufacturers are putting into their headsets, be it the, the, um, the optics or the low latency or the tracking, and every small increment of improvement is to decrease motion sickness. And Cardboard just says, you know, screw all that. Let's just give people the bare minimum. And I think that there's a reason why other manufacturers are putting the time and effort into it. I, I think the... The next law, the, the, the company's going to do that next is Oculus. Mm. I think there are a million people using Gear VR, newest versions, I said from last month, um, because all those people who bought the GS7 got finally getting their Gear VR headsets. I think that their next version, whatever comes up the GS8, you know, Carmack's going to have his inside out tracking system solved. It might be an extra piece of hardware. I'd be totally worth it if you can sell, you know, it would be worth the $100 or even $150 if they sold a uh, Gear VR headset that you can put your phone in that also that had added, added hardware for, um, for computer vision and for room tracking. The, th the thing is, Google, at least publicly, they're, they're at the forefront of that. Because of Project Tango. Yeah. I mean, they can do amazing things. And I'm hoping that that is part of this next generation of VR for them. Hmm. I just don't know if the latency is going to be good enough for that stuff. And also power consumption. and Right. You know, the, the limitation is the phone right now. Yeah. By the way, I can't stop chuckling when you talk about Carmack's inside-out tracking compared to Silicon Valley, the show. I didn't see this episode. Well, they call their, like, development a inside-out. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. They're, cracks me up yeah. that real-world and HBO's version of Silicon Valley are colliding. Yeah. I had a quick Twitter conversation with Carmack yesterday. <laughs> um, what? It's like three exchanges back and forth because I was wondering... I've been watching some 360 video, uh -huh. and what, what I've thought about is I, I don't like 360 video because when you're filming these things on camera phones or GoPros that were not designed to capture video that way. You could put a fisheye lens on a rectangular sensor, but it's still going to be a rectangular sensor, and you're wasting a ton of pixels, and the thing is on the edge of the screen because of the optics, because of the way the fisheye lens work, it's going to be more in focus, it's going to be sharper at the center of the screen and isn't going to be as sharp at the edge of the screen. And this goes back to NVIDIA's, that the, the, the way they're thinking about rendering their games to optimize for the optics, right? The, the pixels are skewed or however, they're warped in a way, so the image on the corner of your screen that gets broadcast through the corner of the lens is going to be as sharp as what's in the center. Mm -hmm. um, and So all, would that take, like, curved optics and, or, or something? Or curved sensors. Yeah. And... Uh, that seems far away. Yeah, and, and what Carmack eventually ends up it would be, yes, it would help, but it would be super, it would be very hard and expensive for any camera company to make something like that. Um, so that, I mean, it's a pipe dream, but hopefully later on. Um, anyway, I think that's all we have time for this week. We're gonna, we got to skip, we got to skip the, uh, what we've well, been testing. Well, well, I'll just say what we've been testing. I get my Rift tomorrow. Oh, okay, there you go. Next That's week, what I will be talking hey, next about next week, week. We'll have some experiences. I can get, tell you, try Blaze Rush. Oh, I'm trying the to climb. climb. We got the climb right here. If you want to try it later today, 
And then anyway. I definitely want to, I'm going to try watching a full length video or something Movie. close to it. Get virtual desktop. Yeah. Get that on steam. I think it's really cool. Um, and, and play Kronos. Oh, Kronos developers put up a really interesting blog on the Oculus blog about how they designed their camera system for their game, the lessons they learned from Herobound and um, the Gear VR games. Um, so that's worth the read. Got to build, um, build a pin sim, too. And sure. got to build a pin sim. Are you going to bring it to California Extreme? Heck no, man, unless someone wants to lend me an Oculus. I don't want to let that's 100 true. people it's stretch true. and sweat on my Oculus. Let's get, get a sponsor. We can, you can use the VR cover. We have one right here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, that's it for this week. Thank you so much, everyone out there, for listening. Thank you guys out there, uh, you guys here, for uh, joining me this week on This Is Only a Test. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Um, but until then, here's an old outro. Hi there, I didn't see you. Test it. I just don't want to, I don't like having people walking around barefoot in my house. That's it. Bye.